summer blockbusters. We've got one more. Next week is Sergeant York. We're going to talk about when it's right to fight, when is it right to go to war. Um, how many of you have seen Sergeant York? That is an old movie. It is awesome. It is an excellent movie. Um, a man is called into the Army, and he has just become a Christian, and he's really struggling with whether he should take a human life. Um, it's, it's all about um, how he comes... How he grips with that, that whole issue, comes to grips with that whole issue. It's, it's an excellent movie because we're, we're talking, you know, in our press um, nowadays, we're talking about war. Should we be in Iraq? Should we be in Afghanistan? Should we be in all these different places? Um, it, today, we're going to watch Hotel Rwanda and we're going to talk about a little bit about what the U.N. did, what the U.S. did as we turned our backs on what was going on there. So um, that's, that should be a pertinent message. When we finish that series, we're going to go into a series of tough questions and we're going to look at... Um, the question of homosexuality, what is the church's proper response? How would God respond to folks that are struggling with issues of, of homosexuality? Um, we're going to look at the right to die issues, abortion, euthanasia. That's going to be one of our tough questions. Um, so we're going to be looking at several things over the, the, the month um, starting July 10th. And, and we want folks to come. And we want you to come because what we've always said is this church is a place that we welcome your questions. We are not afraid of questions. If we don't know the answers, we'll pray to God and we'll, seek the, we'll, we'll start searching the pages of the Bible to find out the answer to those questions. So we want you to come and, and check that out. Today, I want to ask you this question. This is the first thing on your listening guide. We're going to jump right in. What makes you angry? Now, we could spend the rest of our time, the rest of the day, sharing what makes us angry. But I'm not talking about annoyances. I'm not talking about when you go to Walmart and you're standing in the, you know, the express line. It says 10 items only. And you've counted the number of items in the person in front of you. You know, there's 13 there. I'm not talking about that. Or if they have 500. Actually, I think somebody had 500 items in the express lane the other day. Or like Friday night, I had to go get a shower curtain for our teenagers. And, and I, this is 11 o'clock at night in, in Arlington, Texas. I walk into Walmart and every line has like 20 people in line. I think I am not ever getting out of here. I'm not talking about that. I'm not talking about when people don't know how to drive. And Jason, you made the comment the other day. We were going somewhere and he says, man, people need to learn how to drive in this town. And I said, you're right. And that's true. Um, but that's not what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about annoyances. You know, my kids get on my nerves when I'm talking on the phone. And they keep saying, Daddy, have you seen my bouncy ball? I, want to, I need my bouncy ball. Daddy, where's my bouncy ball? Dad, bouncy ball, bouncy ball, bouncy ball. And you're just like, <laughs> you don't. But you think about it. I'm not talking about that. Those are annoyances. I'm talking about what makes you mad as in righteous anger. Because the Bible talks about there's something called righteous anger. Jesus Christ got angry, but He didn't sin. He got angry when He came in and He saw the temple, the money changers in the temple. He got downright mad and He cleansed the money temple, but He didn't sin. And see, that's what the Bible tells us. If you look at Ephesians 4.26, the Bible says that anger is a proper response at times, but it gives us this caution. In your anger, do not sin. Anybody ever sinned when you were angry? I'll be the first. Yes, I have. More than likely. <laughs> yes. Um, as a matter of fact, a lot of times when we're angry, we sin. And the Bible says don't do that. Well, what we need to do is we need to figure out when to get angry and when not to. We live in a world where people get angry about the wrong things and don't get angry about the right things, things that do matter. And it seems really messed up. 
And I've spent three years. We just celebrated our three-year anniversary at this church. I've spent three years telling people, find out the purpose for which God put you on this earth. God created you with a purpose in mind when He created you in your mother's womb. Find that purpose. Spend the rest of your life living out that purpose. Whatever you can't wait to do, think about that because God put that dream in your mind. Do those things. The, the things that, that give you energy don't drain energy from you. And, I, and I'm going to keep preaching that as long as, as I have breath. Find out what God created you for. But today we're going to look at kind of a different spin on that. Today I want to ask, what makes you angry? And I hope that, that through our exercise today that God will reveal some things to you that maybe you didn't even know you were passionate about. Because you're going to look at something and you're going to say, that's wrong. Someone should do something about that. And my prayer is today that when you leave this place, maybe God will call you to be that someone. Now, I want to stop right here and say, there is a difference between guilt and conviction by the Holy Spirit, by God's Spirit. Guilt is not um, a method used in the Bible. So we're not going to try to guilt anybody. We're not going to... Um, if, if you leave here feeling guilty, don't do anything about it because that's come from me and that has not come from God. But if you leave here and in your heart you're saying... Oh, dear God, I didn't know it was like that. What can I do? That's from the Holy Spirit. Then you need to do something about it because God's going to use you to change the world. It may be this small part of the world, but He will use you to change the world. Well, I want to ask you some things. I want to give you some stats, and let's, let's just uh, consider this. 2.6 billion, that's 40% of the world's population, don't have proper sanitation facilities. Is that okay? Or does it make you angry? One billion people in the world still use unsafe drinking water sources. I was with a man this weekend. We stayed with some friends in Arlington. And when I mentioned this stat to him, he said, it has always been my dream to go back to Central America and give them clean water. And he is, he's just a few steps from patenting a water filtration system where you can, uh, when you, where you can filtrate 500,000 gallons of water in just a few minutes. And he says, when I get that, I'm going to Central America. He's, he's one person who says, I'm going to do that. He's been to Central America many times. He's seen the condition. And it, makes, it moves him in his spirit where he wants to do something about it. And he's about to do that. One billion people live in poverty. And by this, I mean extreme poverty. And the way you get on the extreme poverty list is, that means you're going to die soon. Because you don't have money for proper nutrition. You don't have money for medicine. Things like that. You will die soon. One billion people live in extreme poverty. More than one billion people in the world live on less than one dollar a day. When I heard this, my mouth dropped open. One dollar a day. Is that acceptable? Or does that move you? 800 million people go to bed hungry every day. 300 million of them are children. Is that acceptable? 27 million people in the world are in slavery. This blew my mind. More people are in slavery in the world today than at any time in history. And I'm not talking a maid or a butler. I mean, these people have no prayer in this lifetime of getting out of slavery unless someone does something. I read part of a book this week called um, The Good News About Injustice uh, by Gary Haugen. And you're going to see him in a minute on one of the video clips that we show. But the good news about injustice is that God is against it. And he calls his followers to be against it as well. Every 3.6 seconds, someone dies of hunger, and most are children under the age of five. And so we decided, you know, with all these stats, that, you know, it's just going to kind of get blurry, and you're going you're to um, 
not really comprehend this. So what we decided to do was we decided to make this intensely personal. We decided to take the names of the children who were here last Sunday down in our kids' zone and put their names up on the screen. Is that going to be on this one, Alex, on the side of Put their names up on the screen and help you realize how long it would take for our children to die if we had 27 children downstairs and this is how long it would take to wipe out our children's area. One thing if a child on the other side of the world dies. It's another thing if it's my child. If I know your child is dying. That's not acceptable to me. That a child, an innocent child, dies every 3.6 seconds. So it takes about a minute and a half for our entire children's program to be wiped out if they were to be in other locations in the world. And either through disease or through lack of nutrition, through lack of water, maybe even abandonment by their parents. It wipes out a child every 3.6 seconds. Is that acceptable? Or does that move you to want to do something? Does that make you angry? Nothing ever happens for good until someone is moved to action. And you've heard the saying, all that is required for evil to prevail is for good men to do nothing. It's unacceptable for us to leave this place today and do nothing. We are affluent. And I know, I know people could stand up and say, I disagree with you. I am not affluent. Do you live on more than $1 a day? We're rich compared to the rest of the world. And I know some of you are thinking, oh no, what's he going to ask us to do? Remember, I said guilt is not a motivating factor. We're going to show you some stuff here in a minute um, from Hotel Rwanda. And I just need to tell you a little bit about it. It happened in uh, 1994, and it was the Mil Kaline was the name of the hotel. And it was, it did, it did end up being a refugee camp. And uh, it happened in 1994, and so we just wanted to give you some perspective about 1994. I don't even know what I did with it. There it is. Here's some things that happened in 1994. The movies that came out that you would remember. Forrest Gump. Remember when Forrest Gump came out? The Lion King. Doesn't seem like 11 years ago The Lion King came out. Speed. This song was very popular. It had made a comeback. That's why we're playing this song. I can see clearly now. It had come back. Events that happened in, in 1994. January. It was one month before the Olympic Winter Games. And ice skater Nancy Kerrigan is attacked by Tanya Harding. You remember that? By her boyfriend. Okay, well, she gets, she gets in trouble, too. Remember the O.J. Simpson trial? 1994. Deaths in 1994. March 4th, John Candy. Didn't seem like 11 years since he passed away. Kurt Cobain, lead singer of Nirvana, is found dead in Seattle, Washington. He'd committed suicide three days earlier. TV, first episode of The Magic School Bus, and the pilot episode of the hit medical drama, E.R., 
airs on NBC. Oh, and, and by the way, um, April 6th, the Rwandan president, um, I can't even say the names, they die when a missile shoots down their jet near Kigali, Rwanda. This is taken as a pretext to, to the Rwandan genocide. April 7th, Rwandan genocide begins in Kigali, Rwanda. And April 8th, April 8th is when Kurt Cobain was found dead in Seattle, Washington. And which one did you hear about? Kurt Cobain. We didn't hear about the genocide. Well, there's one man who decided to, to begin defending people. Um, it, really, he wasn't defending them. He didn't have anything to defend them with, but he, he let them come into the hotel. But I've got to explain something to you. What happens is the Belgians had come and they had colonized Rwanda years ago. And what they did was they wanted some folks, some natives, to help them in the colonization of this country. So they chose certain people to help them um, to, to employ. What they did was they chose the light-skinned. They said they seemed more elegant. They, um, um, they had thinner noses. And they were taller. And they just arbitrarily went around and chose these people. And they gave them the, the tribal name, the Tutsis. So the Tutsis could actually work and help the Belgians colonize. The people who had darker skin, who weren't as elegant, who had broader noses. And by the way, one of the things they would do at one time was they would carry around a tape measure and they would measure the width of a person's nose to determine which tribe they put them in. They were called the Hutus. And so what happens is when the Belgians leave, they leave the Hutus in power. And the Hutus strike revenge on the Tutsis for what they've seen as years and years of oppression. And they start murdering people right and left. And uh, so I want you to watch this as the horror begins. Not much sound going on here anyway. There it is.
the popular phrase for the Tutsis was cockroaches. If you were protecting cockroaches, then not only would they kill the cockroaches that you protected, they would also kill you. Um, and what struck me about this scene here was, was the reporter who, who actually filmed the footage less than a half mile from the hotel. He said, um, uh, I think people will see this and they'll, say, and they'll say, oh my God, that's terrible. And they'll go right on eating their dinners. That's what we did. I didn't even know what was going on over there. To be honest with you, I hadn't heard about it. I just watched this movie for the first time this last week. And I was blown away by our lack of action. And Paul, the, the man who was in charge of the hotel, ends up saving 1,200 Hutus and Tutsis. Um, but many more were killed. And he says, how can they not intervene? And here's the deal. Earlier in the movie, they, they interview the UN commander. And he says, we're here as peacekeepers, not peacemakers. That's why they couldn't shoot whenever the guys came up and threatened them. He told them, put their guns down. We're peacekeepers, not peacemakers. There's nothing we can do to stop the killing. And when the violence got too rough, here's the next scene. Here's what the U.N. does. And, and I'm not trying to, to come down hard on the U.N. because the United States was just as, as guilty as the U.N. But when it got too rough, they said, we will remove all of the foreign nationals. We'll leave the people to shoot themselves, to kill themselves.
I couldn't couldn't stand it this week as I was watching um, for the first time. Janie couldn't watch. She had to go in another room so she couldn't hear anything. She has a passion to defend children. She didn't even know about it until a few years ago. And uh, it becomes intensely personal to her whenever a child is injured. And so hundreds of orphans were left behind. And then hundreds of thousands more were, were turned into orphans when their parents were killed because of the width of their nose, because of the color of their skin. And that's unacceptable. What are you feeling right now? Righteous anger? In the Bible, injustice is what happens when someone in power takes something from someone who does not have power and they take it for themselves. And I, I heard all kinds of stories. One man in, in South America, he, was, he had his land removed from him because the mayor of the city wanted it. So he was thrown into jail so the mayor could take his land. That's injustice. Heard of a girl whose, whose mother needed surgery to survive. She needed $30 cash. And the only way they could ever get $30 cash in India was, for, was to go to the, the loan sharks. But the only way the loan shark would give them $30 cash was if they sold their youngest daughter to him into slavery. And what would have to happen, she's like eight years old. She would have to then do whatever he says every day. And what she did was she rolled cigarettes every day, 10 to 12 hours a day, six days a week. And she made 70 cents a week. The only way he would take the loan back is if it was in cash, $30 cash. She made 70 cents a week and she had to pay the loan shark for her groceries that she ate. She will never, ever get out of slavery. Her mother was saved. The surgery was performed. But her daughter was lost. And that's unacceptable. Well, this last scene I'm going to show you. And then, then it's going to get a little better. <laughs> because there are things we can do. This last scene I'm going to show you. The Hutus have figured out that this has become a refugee camp. And they're wanting to come and kill everyone. Um, Paul, who is the, the manager, he calls the president of the company that owns the hotel. And he says, you got to do something because they're about to take us out and kill us. And he says, what can I do? And he says, call the Belgians, call the French. They're the ones who supply the Hutu army. Talk to them. Talk to someone. Well, there's a very tense moment where you think that everybody's going to be just wiped out, all 1,200 of them. But God had a bigger plan. And they were able to intervene.
I got enormously frustrated with that scene. Acts of genocide. I like what the reporter said. How many, of acts of, how many acts of genocide does it require before it's genocide? People are dying right and left, and, and our government was arguing over the definition of the term genocide. Well, several things struck me. Paul says to everyone, you know, if influential people abroad, you must call them. We must shame them into helping us. Because, in all honesty, we don't see stuff like that. We see isolated killings, which are horrible. But we don't see anything like what they saw there. Let me just give you a couple of numbers. 800,000 Rwandans, 800,000, were killed in eight and a half weeks. In order to get perspective of how many that was, it would be like September 11th, happening two or three times a day, Every day for eight and a half weeks. That's how many people died. You remember the horror we felt on September 11th? Can you imagine living in your home and because of the color of your skin or the size of your nose, you're drug out and killed mainly with machetes? That's, that's unacceptable. And see, our government argues over these terms. And that's what happens when you try to, to um, solve the world's problems by political means. Was this a political problem? No. None of the world's deepest problems are political. They're spiritual. So if this is a spiritual problem, then the second thing I've got on your listening guide is, what is God's plan? Because it sure doesn't seem to be working. Does God have a plan? God is against injustice. We're told that over and over in Scripture. 
And if injustice is being done, then then something's got to be wrong. And I'll tell you what's wrong. How can people in Rwanda, who the children who saw their parents butchered, or the, even the folks who survived, how can they believe that there is a good God when all they see is murder and death and destruction? How can children sold into the sex slavery believe there is a good God? It's on the side screen. Watch this. This came from a NBC special report. This is just the intro. Not going to happen? Not at all? Okay. We have a a DVD that, that we got from NBC, and it shows in Cambodia children being taken from their homes, some of them being kidnapped and sold into into the sex trade industry. And what got me was some of these kids were five years old. My daughter Hannah is five years old. And a lot of wealthy American men go to Cambodia to try to find young girls. And they pay top dollar for them, especially if they're virgins. And if somebody doesn't intervene, they have no hope of ever getting out of the sex slave trade. And so what we've done is we've got a few things at the back. Uh, International Justice Mission, Gary Haugen runs that. He actually runs sting operations where they go in undercover and they... Um, they pretend that they're trying to find these young girls. They have hidden cameras. They, they document all this stuff. And then they go to the Cambodian government or other places and they say, is this acceptable in your country? And they begin to put the pressure on them. They say, no, this is not acceptable. And slowly but surely, they're rescuing folks. You can even, do you have their website, Alex? Is it IJM.org? IJM.org. You can go on and you can, you can become a part of their email um, uh, weekly email, and they'll tell you each week about someone else being rescued because someone decides to take action. And on this interview, um, Haugen is asked by the by the American reporter, he says, well, aren't you afraid people are going to accuse you of, of unethical means of doing this? And he goes, these kids have got to be rescued. If I have to go undercover and pretend I'm someone so that I can I can get these kids out, they never do anything to hurt the kids. They try to help them. Um, how can people, how can these little girls believe that there is, that God is good? Let me turn that off. Okay. How can uh, folks in third world countries that are watching their children die from hunger, how can they believe that God is good? Well, God has a plan to show people that he's not preoccupied, that he's not weak and he's not uninterested. And the plan might surprise you. If you open up the pages of scripture, you'll discover that the hope of the world is not government. You know what the hope of the world is? The local church. Which explains why a lot of things aren't happening, because sometimes the local church is not working right. Well, what if the local church fails? What is plan B? There is no plan B. We're it. So listen to what Jesus says to his followers in Matthew 5.14. You are the light of the world. Like a city on a mountain glowing in the night for all to see. Janie and I flew to Alaska a few weeks ago. And one thing we noticed 
was that if there's a city on top of a hill, there's no way to camouflage it, especially at night. It glows. And the Bible says that we are supposed to be the same way. The works of a Christian are not supposed to be hidden. We're not supposed to go out and do things, say, look at me, I'm a Christian. We're supposed to go serve people. And they say, why are you doing this? What in the world? They say, because our God is good. Look what it says in Matthew 5, 16. In the same way, you should be a light for other people. Live so that they will see the good things you do and will praise your Father in heaven. Back when we did the campaign of kindness, back around Thanksgiving, we, we did a Thanksgiving meal where we just handed out free Thanksgiving meals. We went and, and we um, raked leaves in yards and we did all kinds of things for folks. And, and we just handed out a little card that said, a small act of kindness, a whole world of difference. Um, we, I have a, a recording. I still have it. And I need to get this taped, get it to Alex so you can hear it sometime. But I played it again just this week. A lady calls because what we did was hand out a card and it says small act of kindness, whole world of difference, had the church phone number and had a map to where our church was. That's all we did. We didn't we didn't try to you know, pressure people to come to church. Well, this lady calls and she says, hi, I'm so and so. I was just at Taco Bell and somebody bought my meal at the drive through window. And she said, all I got was this card. And I just wanted to tell you how good that made me feel. And then she started telling what. What had been going wrong in her life? She said, I just called my mom to tell her I couldn't believe that someone would do something so kind. I'm a single mom. I'm struggling. And to have somebody buy my meal just made me feel good. We're supposed to do stuff just because our God is good. And that's when people begin to see it and believe it. Second Corinthians 520 says, here we are then speaking for Christ as though God himself were making his appeal through us. Circle those words, us. We are the hope of the world because we know Jesus Christ and we're supposed to do something about the pain and suffering. But it says his appeal through us, his appeal to what? His appeal to the fact that God is good and wants to have a relationship with every person in the world. That's what we're supposed to do. We're ambassadors for Christ. Who should be the first people on the scenes whenever there's an earthquake or there's some type of tragedy? Christians. There's a there's a group of, of Texas Baptist men that anytime there's a hurricane hits somewhere, they immediately load up their trailers and they go and they stay as long as necessary. They take their chainsaws, they cut up trees, they help provide water, they put up tent cities, and they minister to people 24 hours a day until folks are able to get back on their feet. And people walk away from that saying, there must be a God because those guys came when they didn't have to. That's what we're supposed to do. So when we do those things, the body of Christ takes action. And that's when people begin to believe that God is good. Okay, so what's next? That's the third thing. What's next? We know that there's pain and, and suffering in the world. We know there's poverty. We know there's injustice. And we know that we don't have any cash in our pocket right now. Right? I mean, every one of us to say, I don't have anything. Well, I want to I remind you of a story um, that Jesus tells in the New Testament. And it's the story of feeding the 5,000. You've all heard this story, right? Um, there's so much to do. What do we do? Well, the disciples find themselves in a seemingly hopeless situation. You know the deal. Jesus has been teaching all day and everybody's hungry. And so they come to Jesus and they say, send the people away because they're hungry and they need to go into the towns and buy food because they're not even in a town. They're out in the wilderness somewhere. And Jesus says, you feed them. I just I would love to have seen the look on Jesus face because he knew what was about to happen. But he goes, you feed them. And they look back at Jesus and they begin to explain to Jesus the reality of the situation. Maybe you don't understand because you're not from around here, Jesus. There are 5,000 hungry dudes over here. And Jesus says, what do you have? So the disciples, they had looked around and they found out what they have. Five 
fish and a couple of loaves of bread. Right? And then Andrew makes this incredible statement. He goes, what is that among so many? I mean, he's, he's basically saying, do the math, dude. This is not, nobody's, they're not even going to get a sniff of the fish. And Jesus says, give it to me. And I can just imagine the disciples standing there going, okay, man, you want, here you go. Because I think about that. My son is 10 years old, and I think it was probably about a 10-year-old boy who was there hanging out that day. And that's a pretty good meal for a 10-year-old boy, at least most of them. Sometimes, you know, it depends on what day it is, whether he's having a growth spurt or not. But that's a pretty good meal, and this little boy gives it all. I mean, his mama had taken care of him. What happened to the 5,000 men? Maybe they needed their moms there, too, to take care of them. But are you all awake? Okay, just check. But what he did was he shared it, and Jesus performs a miracle, right? And how much was left over when Jesus performed the miracle? Twelve baskets full. We only know about the 5,000 men. We don't know how many women and children were there. Probably ten to 15,000 people Jesus feeds on some fish and some loaves of bread. And here's the deal. Was the little boy, the ten-year-old boy, was he responsible for the miracle? No. What was he responsible for? Giving what he had. What do you got? Well, I heard a talk one time where a guy said, what do you have two of that you don't need? Maybe you could give away one. And I've been thinking about that. I told Janie, I said, okay, we've got to go through the house and find some things we've got two of that we don't need. And she goes, you mean things like that are in the closet? And I said, no, baby. We need to give away something that, that costs us a little bit. Because God can use that for a miracle. The disciples did exactly what you and I did. We look at the enormity of the problem. The world is lost and the world is dying. And there's all these kids, 800,000. We can't even put our arms around 800,000 because there's only 18,000 in Palestine. There's only 50,000 in, in Anderson County. That's how many people are around here. We're talking 800,000 people died. We, it's too big. We look at the magnitude of the problem instead of the power of our Savior. It's not too big for God. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. And sometimes we need to ask Him to sell some of them to pay for some things. And we need to pray and we need to do what we can. See, the, the disciples thought the truth of the situation that everybody's going to starve, everybody's going to be hungry, and no, we're not going to have a good result from this thing. But truth had not spoken. Because Jesus in John 14, 6, He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. So truth is a, is a person, not some abstract concept. Truth spoke and said, give me what you have. Just give me what you have. And I'll do some amazing things with it. God is waiting for us to give just a little bit of obedience so he can do a miracle. So what are we going to do? If you look at the bottom of your listening guide, front side of your listening guide, I put some things down there. Isaiah 117 says, learn to do good, seek justice, help the oppressed, defend the orphan, fight for the rights of widows. So here are just some practical things. Each week we've, we've talked about different things that you could do as a result of what we've heard. Well, here's some things you can do. Number one, I will give away something that I have two of. I just told you about that. Because you think about what folks in other countries, they would love to have what's in our closet. One time, Janie and I were at a conference and we were sitting with some people from uh, Europe. And we were asked the question, what percentage of the clothes in your closet have you not worn in the past six months? So Janie and I start talking. We say probably 
And there were, there were three people from Europe and one lady from Asia. And um, so we got to share, and we went first and said, well, probably 50% of our clothes. And their mouths dropped open. And they said, are you rich? And we go, no. What about you? What percentage of your clothes? And it was zero to five percent that they don't wear. They were amazed that we had so many clothes. Second thing is I will adopt a child through Compassion International. We have some children back there. How many we have back there? Fifteen back there. Now, what this costs is thirty dollars a month. And so what we were talking about this and, and we're not trying to put any pressure on anybody, but we're going to suggest to small groups that, that maybe they adopt somebody that they 30 bucks a month. You can you can actually get food and, and clothing for a child. And they're actually their pictures are back there. They're not just some abstract. The pictures are back there. You know where they are. You know their name. We can write to them. They can write to us. And so we just thought, you know, our church needs to adopt some kids. Individuals in our church need to adopt some kids. A friend of mine did this one time. He's a pastor in, um, in another city. And, and he gave up Internet access for a year because that's what it cost them so that they could support a child. And here's the deal. I like my Internet access. I'm not giving that up. So I'm going to find something else that I can give up in order to help sponsor a child. You see where we're coming from? We're not trying to make you feel bad we're trying to just put the, the need out there. I remember one time I was driving down the road when we lived in Arlington, and I heard about some refugees from Cuba that were being rescued at sea, and a lot of these were pastors. They were trying to come to the United States, and they were swimming, and they were being picked up by the State Department, and they were being shipped back. And what this, this company was going to do was they were going to fly rescue missions that when the boats went down, they were going to rescue these guys. And God just moved me. I said, that's not right. And this was years ago. We gave a, a sum of money that we couldn't afford to give. It was about the same time that this was happening. I guarantee if I'd have known about this, I would have given to this cost. So what is God speaking to you about? So next one is I will talk to my small group about adopting a child. I would like more information about how to help. And at the very least, do the last one. I will ask God to give me a passion to defend the helpless. One of my favorite verses in scriptures in James, and it says... Pure and undefiled religion in the sight of God our Father is this. To visit orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world. Last night I was reading to my children in Matthew chapter 22. And Jesus himself said, here are the main things. He's, he's ripping the Pharisees apart. He is just ripping them apart. And Caleb goes, I like this story. I'm like, dude, chill out. He's just telling them how it is. And he says... You, you tithe even the spices that you have in your cabinets, but you neglect justice, mercy, and faithfulness. And so we talked about, we spent our whole time last night before bed, what is justice? What is mercy? What is faithfulness? Being loyal. And we said, those are the three things that Jesus said are more important than even tithing off your spices in your cabinet. And they got tickled. They're like, cinnamon, you know, you give 10% of the cinnamon. How do you even measure that, you know? I've got 10 tablespoons. Here you go. Don't be putting 10% of your spices in the offering basket back there. We don't want 10% of your spices. Okay? I mean, you understand what I'm saying? The deal is, what is God calling you to do? So I want you just to bow your heads for a moment. And we'll be finished. I want you to ask God this question. So what do I do about it?
Father, we are rich. Our nation is rich. And if I'm real honest, I waste a lot of money on myself that maybe I should be spending so that a child or so that an adult can, can come to know about you and spend eternity in heaven. Just show me what I'm supposed to do, God, and show each person what they are supposed to do. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.